Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Stephen Nill, CEO of CharityChannel.com. So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising, and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, TedHart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, here's Ted. Thank you, Steve, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. As always, you can call into our show when we get to our page two expert by dialing 347-324-3080. We've got a great show for you today, and as always, we start with page one news. Now, all of our news is always available over in the radio links at tedhartradio.com, so you can follow along as I share with you the news from around the world today in the nonprofit sector. Also, just to remind you, you can also ask questions over in the chat room, and I do see a couple of folks joining us over in the chat room today. Uh, You can dial in, or if you're super shy, you can also just email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. So first up here in the radio links uh, is a really terrific article over on mashable.com, and this is uh, sharing with you uh, the 10 tips for successful Twitter fundraising. Um, and just some of the uh, the tips, are, they're very general things that you can do and that you need to do, um, but it's always good to have those reminders. And what I really appreciate are some of the examples that are provided uh, in this article that is uh, written by Melissa Juan Rowley. Um, and first up, she shares with us to, of course, cultivate a strong uh, community first. You obviously can't be tweeting folks and d- drawing them uh, to your organization if nobody's listening listening. State your purpose and your request very clearly. Now, obviously, uh, with Twitter, you've got 140 characters, so you've got to be very succinct and get really good at uh, giving people a reason to read those short messages. Um, So she's saying add some excitement, create some buzz. What you're going to really appreciate, as I said, in these 10 tips uh, are some of the examples that she has shared, um, but also um, drawing attention to some of the offline uh, tools that may be available that can help you put together a Twitter campaign for fundraising. Uh, Next up here on uh, the radio links, uh, you'll find over at tedhartradio.com. It's a very interesting article from selfishgiving.com. And what this is sharing with us is that Starbucks who tends to be a leader in a lot of forms with technology. Um, Certainly they were uh, ahead of a lot of folks in using Foursquare, and they have uh, brought other technology to their business. They're now starting to launch uh, mobile payment apps uh, on uh, the iPhone, and the suggestion here by this uh, this article on uh, selfish giving is that Starbucks mobile payments may give cause marketing a bit of a jolt. Now, utilization of this uh, this technology really can uh, make a difference uh, for your organization. Um, so I urge you to go and read about this. More importantly, just become familiar uh, with some of the new technologies that are out there and are increasingly becoming available uh, for charitable organizations. 
Next up uh, here on uh, the radio links, and this is very, very impressive, and congratulations to everyone over at the Susan G. Komen uh, uh, Race for the Cure. Uh, I shared with you uh, a couple of months back that the uh, one of our favorite websites, MarketingSherpa.com, uh, were starting to work on their email marketing awards. Uh, for 2011, uh, and they have now announced the winners uh, in the for the top campaigns and best results. And Susan G. Komen is one of the groups that has received not only a Best of Show award but also a Gold award uh, in uh, uh, in the 2011 award. So I want to draw your attention. You actually can download from the radio links at tedhartradio.com a complimentary PDF of the email award. And what's really terrific about this is they share with you not only what the campaign was, but also the analysis and some of the background information. And what they won for is specifically segmentation strategy that pulled in almost 10.5% more donations per person in this campaign. So congratulations again uh, over at Susan G. Komen, Race for the Cure, in winning uh, one of the awards uh, from uh, from Marketing Sherpa. And in a moment, I'm just going to share with you uh, some of the analysis that uh, came out of uh, of that uh, that particular award. Um, so just give me one second here, because I've got that right up here, uh, tedhartradio.com. Uh, you will be able to follow along with me on uh, the uh, campaign analysis for Marketing Sherpa Email Awards uh, 2011. Uh, and the analysis for the Susan G. Komen, why they won, is of all submissions, this entry demonstrated the best overall personalization and segmentation strategy. By using data analysis from previous years, they gained a keen understanding of their audience, which helped them segment messages based on affiliation, attitude, and behavior. The results were astounding, according to one of the judges, the lead judge in this category uh, for uh, business to consumer is Justin Brigadin, uh, marketing manager from MechLab's primary research. And the results in their estimation were astounding. Even with fewer participants from previous years, the Susan G. Komen Foundation was able to raise more money. So this is a really terrific case study uh, that was submitted by Jillian Schrantz from Event 360 um, that really shows you how nonprofit organizations can use the latest technology and the latest strategies to raise more money even in a down economy. He goes on to say that this challenges the old adage that more participants should lead to higher fundraising dollars. Well, I don't know if that challenges uh, that particular old adage, because I do think that more participants could still raise higher fundraising do uh, dollars. But what Susan G. Komen, with the help of Event 360, has done is to show that in a down economy with overall personalization and good segmentation strategy, you can raise more money uh, from fewer participants. Now, I've got a, a really uh, a, a special guest that I want to bring in here on uh, page one, uh, and this guest is going to help us understand uh, and learn a little bit about a special gathering that is going to be taking place next week. I'm going to be participating in a think tank uh, down in Orlando, and I'm bringing in today uh, uh, Audrey Kintz. Uh, Audrey, are you here with us on the Nonprofit Coach? I am. Hi, Ted. Hi, Audrey. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? Terrific. You're live here on the air with uh, the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. And what I was hoping you could do is give a preview of what the, uh, the hopes are and the expectations might be uh, for this think tank that's being called and uh, participants are coming together next week what you're hoping will be accomplished. And then, of course, uh, I think we've got uh, uh, some of the leadership, uh, yourself in included, I think, coming back on the show in a couple of weeks uh, to actually share with us the outcomes. But what is this think tank all about, and why has it been planned? 
Well, thanks, Ted, for having me on, and thanks for allowing me to talk a little bit about the ethics think tank that's coming up here uh, in a week or so. And really, what we're trying to do is bring together um, practitioners, people who are in our field as well as in related fields, to have the conversation about ethical fundraising and about ethical fundraising practice, um, thinking about the laws and the laws that pertain to nonprofits and how external regulation may improve or does it diminish the value-added work of nonprofits? And really having that conversation to say, are we on the same page? Are we all looking at the same important elements? Um, we have different laws state by state. We have federal laws to abide by. But we also have a code of ethics. And is a code of ethics enough? Is there more that we should be doing as professional fundraisers to make sure that the, the best possible practices are being used throughout our country, throughout the world? actually well and I think that this is so important and what I really appreciate uh, in preparation for that is that a number of articles and documents have been sent out to the participants uh, for background reading uh, that uh, I, I believe will you know foster really great dialogue and I like the uh, the notion of sort of beyond uh, the code of ethics what are the actual practices uh, and norms in our industry that we should be following. I'm wondering in advance of this uh, think tank, uh, were there any um, activities or events or news items that uh, have taken place, uh, I don't know, in the last year or two uh, that maybe have drawn particular attention to ethics or have raised this as an issue for a think tank? You know, I think it's been an ongoing conversation with AFP, and uh, we've done a number of think tanks, but this one really came out of kind of where we are in the nonprofit industry, where we are as a nation, um, and I think the, the new 990 and some of the requirements for nonprofits in the new 990 had us thinking, you know, does everyone understand the importance of the new 990 and the regulations and the things that are being asked of nonprofits? our board members aware of their responsibility to see that 990, to read it, to sign off on it. And I think that's been kind of a cursory event in the past. We're trying to raise awareness that it's not, it's actually part of your fiduciary and um, oversight responsibilities as board members. And as we started having those conversations, what we realized is that a lot of this is being done in a vacuum. Um, so there are conversations going on in nonprofits, there are conversations going on at board meetings, there are conversations going on with the attorney general's offices in our different states. Those attorney generals are meeting as a collective and having conversations. But we're not all at the table together. And what's so great about this think tank is we have individuals like Melanie Leslie, and she's a professor of law at the Benjamin Cardozo um, School of Law. And she did a webinar for us earlier about the law and nonprofits and about preventing and managing directors' conflicts of interest and how the board can better understand their role and the conflict of interest and how that can come into play when serving on a board. Uh, many people will say, I have a conflict of interest, I'm representing our university, but they participate in the conversation around the table as if they're still able to participate. And it's like, no, you have a conflict of interest. You can't talk about it. You can't really be a part of the conversation. You need to step back. Those are the kinds of things that we want people to be talking about and thinking about. And what's going to happen, not only are we going to have an opportunity to come back and visit with you, Ted, but in March at the International Conference for the Association of Fundraising Professionals, we'll have a 90-minute presentation on kind of the some of the findings. And there actually will be a published paper that will come out at the end of this that we want to share throughout the industry. Well, and I think that's so important to be able to draw attention to these issues, and and I, I really appreciate you uh, raising uh, the the issue of Melanie Leslie. Of all the documents that were sent, of course, they're all uh, excellent. But of all the documents that uh, I read in preparation for this think tank, uh, her article, "The Wisdom of Crowds: Groupthink and Nonprofit Governance," I thought was particularly insightful. Um, certainly uh, draws uh, a, a good deal on some of the top. Topics that we've already discussed here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, with Ted Hart, and I'm very pleased to let our audience know uh, that Melanie Leslie has accepted an invitation to actually come on to our show and devote an entire show uh, to this topic that she has raised about nonprofit governance, and I believe uh, she will uh, be here with us in June um, to 
talk specifically about some of the issues uh, that that she raises. But before I let you go, one of the things I'm I'm keenly interested in, of, of course, is the political backdrop to um, uh, to ethics, because I'm not always sure. And one of my fears is is that good ethical practices are not always what's being promoted uh, in law or in um, our state houses or even in the federal government, uh, but instead are caught up in assumptions or even false assumptions that are purported uh, by various politicians. What kinds of fears do you have about the connection between law and ethics? I, I, you know, I guess I don't know if I have fears. I think what is important is that we're having an ongoing dialogue, and I think that's been missing. And some of what's happened, certainly at the federal level, I feel is is in part. Uh, misinformation or lack of good information and good conversation at the table as we craft laws or as we think about how regulation should happen. And I'm thrilled that Mike DeLucia will be joining us as well. And prior to becoming a trustee for the Agnes Lindsay Trust, he was the Assistant Attorney General in and I'm going to say Massachusetts, and I, I could have that wrong. I apologize, Ted. But um, in New England, I'll say that. And, um, you know, he's been a great – again, he provided some of the pre-reading for us. And he really is wanting to help us have this conversation about government regulation and protecting ethical fundraising. They have the same goals at heart, but I sometimes think, um, you know, we don't speak to legislators or we don't have the conversation with lawmakers in a way that helps us get to a common ground. And so we both better understand one another. And that's why I'm so excited about this think tank, to have Mike there, to have Melanie there, um, to have thought leaders from across the country and actually the world. We have some folks coming in from um, international locations, Hong Kong and I believe Canada. So we're just delighted to have this conversation and get people thinking about how we can be better partners. We're all looking to raise the bar, but let's try and raise that bar together instead of one lifting the bar up on one side and one being conked with the bar on the other end. Absolutely. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to the show just to give us a preview of what is being planned uh, for the Think Tank in Orlando next week. I look forward to having you and your colleagues back on the show uh, to share with us what actually takes place in in, uh, uh, in this Think Tank and what was learned and maybe uh, some of the uh, the finer points of the white paper, as you said, that will be developed uh, from, uh, from uh, the Think Tank next week. Audrey, thank you again for your time. And thank you for coming on the uh, Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart today. Ted, thank you so much for allowing me to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all of your great work in the industry and uh, as being a thought leader. And I look forward to seeing you next week in Orlando. Absolutely. It will be my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, and I will be there. Back here on page one, everyone, I just want to share with you uh, the next topic. You'll be able to find this over in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Uh, and this is another really fine article that you'll find over on mashable.com. And this is a how-to. This is part of the Facebook marketing series that's supported by Buddy Media over on mashable.com. And I really particularly like this engaging. Uh, and mobilizing Facebook fans uh, beyond the like button. Uh, and these are very specific, uh, just as we saw uh, in uh, uh, some of the suggestions on the t 10 tips for successful Twitter fundraising uh, before we spoke with Audrey today. They're also not only sharing with you the concepts, but also sharing with you some examples of uh, for-profit organizations that are using some of these tips. And as I always say, we can certainly learn in the nonprofit sector uh, from the for-profit sector in the money that they're spending uh, in really analyzing and putting together uh, all of these various uh, campaigns. But one of the most important things to take away from this article uh, is to move beyond broadcast mode. And so many charities are utilizing these tools of Facebook and social media as a broadcast of their content rather than a two-way dialogue uh, with, in this case, their Facebook fans. Uh, and as uh, everyone who listens to the show knows, uh, the way that I would prioritize uh, some of the uh, tools that are out there, certainly uh, step one is a well-designed website full of rich content uh, and engaging people using email. The next important strategy in the United States, uh, I believe, is actually a guide star strategy, which we have talked about in the past. 
Um, and uh, third is actually a LinkedIn strategy uh, and what that brings to your organization with Facebook and Juno following in fourth place. Uh, so with that, that gives you a bit of an insight uh, into where I'm thinking about Facebook and where it fits. I think it's important. It's a huge market, uh, but it necessarily does need to be uh, put into perspective as to what's really working for nonprofits right now. Next up, uh, after the break, we are going to move on uh, to uh, page two, and I have got an absolutely exciting guest for you here on page two. Long-time listeners will know that we've had John Carson on the show before, but John is uh, undoubtedly one of the richest resources for information on what works online, particularly for fundraising and very smart fundraising with auctions. He's the founder and CEO of Bidding for Good. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur with 20-plus years in building very successful for-profit enterprises that serve a broader social purpose. He has returned in excess of $175 million to his investors and has never lost investor money. He has previously served on the board of directors with me at the eFilanthropy Foundation Foundation, the National PTA, the National School Boards Foundation, and the Small Business Association of New England. John lives in Boston. He is uh, uh, a, a recent discoverer of the wonders of fatherhood, which we can learn uh, more about. But it is really my pleasure to uh, bring on to page two here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, one of the smartest people in the nonprofit sector for online fundraising and engagement, John John Carson, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Hey, Ted. Glad to be here. Great uh, to have you on the show. Now, great, uh, exciting things ho happening uh, over at Bidding for Good. What I want to do is, uh, for those who may not be familiar with uh, Bidding for Good, I want to start off with uh, you telling us what is Bidding for Good, what its mission is, uh, and how our listeners can engage. Well, we basically are a online e-commerce platform, and we sort of look at the world um, of e-commerce as having a charitable commerce uh, element, um, which is where we sit, and our mission in life is to connect fundraisers um, with uh, shoppers and merchants. Uh, auctions are... Um, the primary mechanism that folks use us for, but um, we also are a standalone e-commerce platform where people can set up a store and sell stuff. Well, those are those are important additional utilizations of uh, of your platform. Let's talk for a second about um, your auction activities. You started your company, I believe, as C Market, uh, and that's now transitioned uh, to being bidding for good. Um, you've raised a lot of money for charities uh, on your platform. How much have you raised? Um, well, last fall we crossed a hundred million dollars, and um, as of right now, and. We have something called the Godometer on our homepage. Uh, we've raised $106,786,201. So just since last fall, you've added another $6 million to the astounding number of $100 million that has gone directly to supporting charitable organizations. That's correct. More like $7 million. John, um, is the primarily your market, is it a U.S.-based market, or do you support charities elsewhere? Um, it is almost entirely U.S. Okay. And is there something unique about the, the, the U.S. charitable or philanthropic uh, donor that they find this so interesting and so engaging a way to support their favorite charities? Well, I think that um, you know there this, the, the world of, of what I call charitable commerce uh, breaks into two buckets. Um, the first is auctions, uh, which is uh, approximately sixteen billion dollars a year, and the other is um, this the notion of just selling stuff at a fixed price. So think Girl Scout cookies or. Um, cookies or uh, gift wrap. Um, so it's been really a U.S. phenomenon. Um, there is some small level of 
activity overseas, but most countries um, fund their um, sort of their third sector through the government. And so because the U.S. Uh, has a culture of having groups raise their own money, um, there's been the incentive to understand sort of how they can create another revenue source. And the thing about charitable commerce is there's there's two attributes that are important for uh, fundraisers to understand. The first is that the total U.S. charitable contributions uh, is approximately 200 million plus or minus, 200 billion rather, uh, plus or minus in a given year. And that's a pool of money that's sort of gone uh, flat uh, with the economic uh, downturn. Um, charitable commerce, by contrast, draws uh, its dollars from household discretionary spending budgets. And that's about a $2.5 trillion uh, pool, and uh, that's actually growing as the economies come back. So that's the first point, is it's a really new uh, revenue source um, that does not cannibalize uh, charitable giving. And the second is that nonprofits are actually pretty good at it. Um, even if they don't sell um, terribly good products, so I think of, you know, hydrogenated cookies that, um, you know, are sold door to door, um, but they do well at it. And so it's our premise that um, this is an important funding stream for fund fundraisers to develop. Um, and as, as I said, we connect them to shoppers and merchants because part of our role in life is to make sure they can get access to good stuff. Now, how how do you do that? I know that your platform uh, is uh, is different from some of your competitors, and a lot of folks may uh, think of eBay. And I know that uh, uh, eBay does have a charitable portion uh, to its efforts. But in a lot of ways, you have really taken on Goliath uh, and have become even more successful by really focusing on the nonprofit sector. What is it that the focus that you give that makes you different from maybe uh, a larger port, uh, platform that doesn't focus on the nonprofit sector? Well, I mean, it's a great question, Ted, and it's really a very old story in the venture capital world where a small upstart will carve out the cor a corner uh, of a market that a generalist um, is kind of claiming for themselves and the specialist. Uh, not because they're necessarily smarter or anything else, but because they're focused, they do a better job at that. So when we looked at the nonprofit world, we identified a set of attributes that we felt it would be important to um, offer for you know people who are um, looking uh, who are in the nonprofit space. So the first thing was we noticed that. Um, eBay had no uh, customer support. Uh, if you have a problem on eBay, you go to their message boards. It's a community-based um, effort, and so you just sort of hope you get somebody who's knowledgeable. Um, we, by contrast, assign every customer their own specialized auction expert. Um, so they have a person and a name that they can call or they can email. The second is that we identified that one of the places that nonprofits really um, need some help in is getting items. And so we help them get items in three different ways. Um, the first is we have built an item acquisition manager, a tool that is designed to help them get items. It is uh, preloaded with lists of merchants in their local metro area that our database of now 12,000 auctions has shown these are merchants that are showing up over and over uh, in that particular metro. And so these are folks that are clearly indicating uh, a desire to make donations, um, likely because they see a marketing value in it. Um, the second thing that's in that item acquisition manager is all sorts of best practices, content, and training and videos on how to get items. So, for example, a two-minute video on how to make a cold call on a local merchant, um, something that most volunteers just they don't really know how to do that. So we've got an expert giving that advice. And the third is a task manager um, that allows the auction chair to be able to assign out tasks to the volunteer team and really create a virtual committee room where all the items are being tracked. 
So that's one place we help. The other is we have a number of full-time people, full-time sales um, professionals, who are going out and getting bulk item uh, donations. So, for example, yesterday we brought in a deal. Uh, it was It's 1,500 um, uh, just short of a week vacations uh, in, on the west coast of Mexico and Puerto Vallarta. Um, we have, uh, for example, um, a deal with Brooks Brothers where we provide a $100 gift card. Uh, those are t typically focused on schools. Um, so we have items. It's our instant item program. So it's not meant to be your whole catalog, but it's meant to sort of help boost you. certainly pays more than pays for our fees. Um, and then the last way that we help uh, nonprofits get items is is this uh, is the ability to build um, compelling item pages uh, for each item that they get from a merchant that has a clickable link back to the merchant's website, enables a logo, they can activate sponsorship capability, all to give the, the client um, more differentiation. Uh, out in the market, uh, that competitive market of getting items, so they stand out vis-a-vis -vis the person who is uh, just soliciting items for a clipboard-based silent auction. Well, those are really Im important additions. Uh, John, we do have a, a caller here. Caller, you're live here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, go ahead with your question for our Page 2 expert, John Carson. Yes, hello, folks. Uh, wonderful programming. Thank you so very much. Uh, I'm affiliated as a volunteer with a, uh, a small arts and cultural organization uh, out of uh, an outer island in Hawaii. And uh, I'm curious as to uh, any examples you might have uh, for a small arts and culture nonprofit in terms of selling uh, uh, artist items in particular. I would be curious about that. Thank you. Um, so Thank you for calling in from Hawaii. John, uh, What? Uh, how would your platform be used for uh, really getting the word out about some of the, uh, the artist work that's available for sale out there? Um, so this is a slightly different um, example in that it's it's a it's a, a it's a relatively large organization, uh, but one of the most interesting and creative uses of our platform that we've uh, observed is from an organization in New York City called the Brooklyn Academy of Music, uh, often sometimes called BAM, and uh, they sell several hundred pieces of art um, every spring, and the way they do that is um, very kind of creative um, because what they do is have the gala and they have the art um, showcased at the gala so that the patrons can sort of essentially um, get a, a much closer kind of experience with it. Um, uh, and so uh, after the gala is over that night, um, the online auction begins the next morning and will run for uh, 10 days. And they uh, pretty regularly raise about a quarter of a million dollars um, off of that auction. And it's 100% art. 100% art and, and local artists as well, I would imagine. Yes. So, That's you know, terrific. I, Caller, does that uh, help give you a, a, a little bit of an insight into how this platform might help your organization? Well, it's very encouraging, yes, absolutely. And uh, I'll be doing some more research uh, online uh, with Bidding for Good, definitely, and make some suggestions uh, to the board and so forth. Uh, tremendous, tremendous effort. Thank you. Thank you, folks. That's terrific. And caller, thank you for uh, dialing in from uh, from Hawaii. Uh, we do have a question over in the chat room for you uh, from uh, from Canada, uh, and that is, what is the setup cost for a nonprofit to work with uh, bidding for good, uh, and do you take a percentage of each final bid fee? So what's the fee structure for someone to use bidding for good? Um, so that's a good question, and uh, it basically breaks down – um, into two parts. Um, the first part uh, is uh, a subscription fee. It's an annual subscription fee um, that is uh, $595. 
Um, and essentially, uh, what uh, the organization gets uh, for that is they get an assigned auction expert. This is the person who will help them through the process. Um, they get year-round usage of our e-commerce tool, uh, including our item acquisition manager. Um, they get the capability to activate sponsorship, which ends up being a really helpful tool, not, o not only to sell for cash, but uh, otherwise to barter for bigger and better items. Um, they get ongoing improvements that we'll make to the tool. So, for example, uh, later this spring we'll be releasing our mobile app, and so that's a uh, sort of those monies go to help support that effort. Um, the second, uh, so the mobile app will be part of the subscription fee. That'll be available once you pay your subscription fee. Yes. Um, now that's okay. uh, it hasn't been released today, uh, so that's later in the spring. Uh, but the subscription fees help underwrite our engineering department, who is constantly putting out releases uh, to make the overall platform stronger and, and better, more helpful. Um, then the other piece is we have a performance fee uh, that has a sliding scale that starts at 9% and then goes all the way to zero um, once you cross $90,000, uh, 9%, 6%, 3%, zero. Um, and for that, just for starters, um, we have a fairly robust uh, uh, data center, so there's uh, servers with backup redundancy and so on. Um, you get access to the quarter million registered bidders that we have uh, in our community, and they will typically drive an incremental 20 to 30 percent additional bids on top of the organization's constituency, and obviously the more bids uh, the more competition, the more price goes up. Um, there's access to the instant items that I refer to, uh, and then t uh, several other features. We have a cash donation feature, a ticket order feature, and then lastly, uh, we have a bid extension feature that um, extends the bidding uh, if it's activated. Uh, it extends the bidding for an additional five minutes if a bid has come in within the last three minutes of, of, of bidding. So that it sort of what it does is it it creates more of a live auction dynamic versus a classical silent auction, which will close the auction at a designated time, no matter if there's um, kind of uh, residual bidding um, desires uh, still remaining. Um, so, so those so the answer is there's a subscription fee, there's a performance fee. Um, we track a lot of, you know, as much of this as we can in our web logs, and, and what the web logs uh, sort of show us is that the way it sort of nets out is that for every dollar that a, that a uh, client pays us for our um, services, they get about $4 back um, across these various value elements, more bidders, more items, uh, kind of money, sponsorships, and so on. Well, I know that uh, a number of uh, uh, charities that uh, that use your platform and are very, very pleased uh, with the outcome. And I can tell you that, uh, and, and, and share with uh, my listeners here today, that uh, I'm a, a happy customer uh, of that, that second group that you mentioned uh, in that I often will use Bidding for Good as a place to go and look for really great sports tickets. Um, of course, I can go to you know my favorite team and buy tickets, but one of the things that I found, and I, I'm not quite sure how they do this, but uh, a lot of charities have inside access to better seats or, or assigned jerseys or things of that sort that you really can't find or have trouble finding uh, just sort of on the open market. So I, I have found uh, bidding for good uh, to be a great place to get uh, uh, gifts you can't buy anyplace else. You know, some of my own personal stories are uh, the, sort of the most memorable uh, birthday present I ever got my mom, or sorry, my wife was, uh, I got her lunch with Mayor Menino, who's the mayor of Boston here, uh, for she and three of her friends, um, which ended up being most of the afternoon was an afternoon she never forgot, sort of a unique experience, not sure where else I would be able to get that. Um, I got a, um, a, a Cuisine Art coffee maker a couple years ago. Um, I actually got it for a pretty good price, uh, and all of the money went to support um, the United Way up in uh, New Hampshire. 
uh, I got um, last summer, I got four uh, front row seats. This is to your point, uh, Ted. I got four front row seats off of third base to the Boston Red Sox, which are pretty hard seats to get a hold of. Um, and that was from um, the Boys and Girls Club of uh, Nashua, New Hampshire. So it's a great well. And that's the extra. That's the extra benefit of of uh, someone coming to bidding for good and and using it for that purpose. I I was able to get uh, four uh, uh, on the the glass uh, uh, tickets for uh, the Washington Capitals uh, uh, for a game in Washington D.C. and an autographed jersey uh, from Alexander Ovechkin for my son for Christmas. And I got to tell you, that's a very memorable gift. And I don't know how I would ever put all that together, first of all, for the price that I got it for, uh, but also the availability of just one package. So I think that's that's a real plus for charities to think about the kind of network that they have um, and that, they, you know, in addition to asking for a cash gift, uh, they really can raise additional dollars for their organization by asking people uh, to give items for such an auction. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is sort of um, a uh, derivative effect of what we are doing is is sort of democratizing that silent auction that, you know, was at a sort of a fancy hotel or whatever somewhere that most people didn't have access to and really making that available to everybody, which benefits not only the nonprofit, which raises more money, but makes this sort of unique set of experiences and goods available to people like you and me. Yeah, and and to what extent can you give us a, a peek into the average charity campaign? Um, because I know that you and your team work really hard to make items available. Um, the average charity, do they uh, gather 100%, 90%, 80% of their own items? What, what's the balance between things that you bring to the table and items that the charity brings uh, themselves? So, um, you know, again, we're speaking in averages, and there's always a sort of a distribution around that. But just a, you know, rough order of magnitude, the typical auction is about 110 items. Uh, it'll raise around eleven to $12,000. If it's a school, it'll be more. Um, the uh, We will typically provide maybe a dozen of those items, uh, and they will get the rest themselves. Um, I'd say about half of our clients... Um, uh, use a technique which we are uh, now formally embedding in all of our um, uh, our auction consultant recommendations, which is uh, to create fund and need items. Uh, an example there would be um, for the uh, an auction for the Boston Food Bank. Uh, there might be fifty dollar um, food vouchers that will feed a family for. Um, you know, two weeks, and, you know, you buy it, and it really goes to the cause, and it sort of funds a need. Or schools will often have, you know, different items that each class wants. So about half our clients will have fund and need items, and that will be another 10% uh, of, the, of the catalog. Um, we also find a lot of people have homegrown items, so it might be once with the executive director, um, you know, have the rector of the church lead your book group, uh, parking space in the school, principal for a day. Uh, within, in our item acquisition manager, we have lists of the very sort of most clever and creative ideas we've seen so that um, we can sort of spread that knowledge across our entire base of uh, 4,000 clients. Right, and, and John, I think in, in terms of you know some of my clients and folks that uh, you know that have sent your way to use your your platform, that's really the difference that I always draw attention to is the the fact that they get consultants when they call you uh, who have seen many many more auctions than the average charity is going to see themselves, um, and they're going to benefit from what works, what doesn't work, how to upsell, how to add additional uh, flavor uh, to each of these auctions. And that does make a difference to the bottom line, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the part of the problem for the nonprofit client um, is that um, this is not uh, a core competency per se. Um, if it's an auction-based 
uh, commerce uh, campaign. Um, it typically is once, maybe twice a year, so they don't do it that often. And so it's a classic case where there really is a role to add value by being in the center uh, of this activity and distributing the knowledge and the best practices out to as many people as possible. So, you know, to give you an example, we saw an auction a while ago that did something we thought was quite clever. Um, they were trying to, you know, spice up their catalog. So they went down to the local, uh, to a coach handbag outlet store. Uh, they bought a bag for like $95. Um, and then they went and they bought two lottery tickets, and they packaged the item as a, you know, $200 coach uh, bag, which is what it had re retailed for in the normal channel, with um, two chances to win the million-dollar Powerball lottery. And no surprise, <laughs> the item got, you know, 20% uh, over uh, face value. So that's the sort of idea we see all day long, and our role in life is to sort of spread those ideas. Yeah, and, and you know that's such a clever idea, and everybody uh, who's listening today is probably nodding their head saying, gee, that's really, really smart, but how many would have come up with that uh, themselves because they took a bag uh, that you know might have sold for a certain amount and and probably you know it maybe possibly doubled the uh, the bids for it because there's that extra chance um, that uh, that I might win that million dollars uh, so or the person who I give the the bag to um, might win uh, might win the million dollars so John those kinds of creative things really um, have made a big difference to the kind of success that that you've brought to uh, to your clients, um, what, what's sort of the the average uh, charity look like that works with bidding for good? Are we talking about you know really really large organizations or or a lot of mom and pops? Um, so I guess I mean we break the world into uh, schools and non schools uh, because schools tend to be um, about one third of our uh, total marketplace. Um, they, uh, they, they are typically very well positioned to run an auction because they have uh, parent volunteers and, and there's a very high affinity. Um, in the non-school space, uh, the three uh, primary um, kind of segments or verticals, if you will, um, are the arts, um, the uh, health care, um, and human services. Um, in terms of size, I think that it sort of mirrors the country um, in that there's an awful lot of fairly small organizations, um, and then there's a smaller set of fairly large ones. You know, obviously a hospital is a, you know, generally a, a multi-hundred million dollar operation, but by the same token, you know, we'll have, you know, in the, in the healthcare world, we'll have, um, you know, I think of the Cancer Community Center in Maine, which has a total staff of about four people, and they regularly raise around $70,000. And, and and some of your your uh, clients have been with you for quite some time, haven't they? Well, you know, I, I think that sort of it's it, what we are trying to do is help people develop a new revenue stream, so that they can ha diversify, um, uh, you know, their their revenue, so that it's not all coming from the annual fund and from charitable giving budgets. So um, what we find is that you know when people get success, um, they then want to build on it and. Um, you know, these are marketplaces, and as I said at the top of the show, nonprofits are pretty good, you know, kind of good at this um, in that their donors will often support them even if the product isn't that good. So uh, our thing is kind of if we can help them improve the catalog, they'll make even more money. Exactly. John, we're going to take a little bit of a, a station break here. I do have uh, a little bit of a, a notice here that I want to share with my listeners uh, from uh, YouTube and their nonprofit program. So let's take a listen as we have a little station break. Does your organization have a compelling story to tell? Do you want to connect with your supporters, volunteers, and donors, but don't have the funds to launch expensive outreach campaigns? The YouTube nonprofit program can help. If I could give one piece of advice, it would be sign up for the YouTube nonprofit program. If I could give another piece of advice, it would just be to capture the story of your organization and use video to tell it because video is the most powerful medium by far. 
The nonprofit program helps you use YouTube as a powerful fundraising tool for your organization. One weekend, we managed to raise enough to feed 500,000 children at school for one day. The video also gained over half a million views and had thousands of comments. And tell stories that haven't been told. Because you guys, the YouTube community, started sharing these videos, there's been housing programs started and feeding programs started. Literally homeless people that were sleeping outside slept inside last night because of you guys. Over 10,000 nonprofits are already using YouTube's premium tools for nonprofits. Your organization can too. Learn more and apply at www.youtube.com slash nonprofits. And thank you so much for the folks over at YouTube for providing such strong and powerful tools for the nonprofit sector. We're back here with uh, John Carson, who is our page two expert, uh, and he is certainly an expert in fundraising and online auctions. You can call in today at 347-324-3080. You can ask questions over in the chat room or just email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. John, thinking about that station break that, that we had, um, what's the combination um, that, that you advise or that you've seen that's been successful uh, between the online auction and an offline auction? Because I'm thinking, you know, video and the, 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 uh, uh, the images that you can share of people coming together in a live auction, what's the, the connection between what you do and fostering that kind of camaraderie? Uh, great, great question, and it really raises, um, I think, you know, some fundamental um, areas that the uh, both the event can be improved and the auction outcome can be improved. Um, the problem that exists with the traditional model, which you know does work. I mean, it, it, I kind of use the analogy, you know, well, horse and buggies worked for a long time. Um, you know, they weren't broken, but, you know, something came along that was just a little bit better called a car, and so we sort of moved to that model. The issue in a traditional um, sort of uh, in-room auction environment that is part of a gala is, first of all, um, the community building that you just referred to is suppressed um, because people are starting to sort of, you know, hunt around and look at clipboards, which, you know, isn't exactly – a community builder, per se. Um, but flipping at the other side, the problem for the auction is that, um, you know, they're basically, you know, uh, having a party and holding an auction in the middle of it, um, which is probably not something that Sotheby's would do if they were trying to get a lot of money for a piece of art. And so what you do is you suppress the primary behavioral dynamic uh, that, it, that really um, drives good outcomes, which is called competitive arousal. And so when folks have to fight the crowd and when they have distractions uh, and they're going to the bar and there's a little bell going off for dinner and there's this sort of awkward, almost weird ending where you're sort of grabbing the pen out of someone's hand, um, that all reduces the amount of bidding. Um, conversely, when that is uh, put into an online environment um, where you're in the comfort of your you know, home den um, and you're bidding away and it's somewhat anonymous because people have you know, their own handles, um, that friction gets removed. So you get a much higher competitive arousal at the end. So it's our view that the gale is better off because there's more socializing and true community building. And the auction's better optimized because you don't have this kind of dynamic of, of trying to have an auction in the middle of a party. And, and what's the, uh, the upside for uh, fundraising potential? When you see that that combination, does it make a difference? Because of course there, you know, there's there's extra cost to having the uh, the the gala. As you're pointing out, there's benefits to that as well. Um, but what what's the balance between the two? Are you going to necessarily make more money uh, with uh, a combination of online and offline, uh, or is uh, is uh, online really doing the trick for a lot of charities? So I, I will give sort of the personal example of um, my kid's school where, um, you know, I, I sort of had to tread a careful line here because um, I didn't want to um, sort of uh, promote 
my own interests, but there was genuine, you know, kind of uh, curiosity about how this worked. And what the the choices that the that the that the fundraiser has is they can um, have all of the items close out online. They can have some of the items uh, kind of uh, close out online and some uh, move into the room with the high bid online being the opening bid in the room. Uh, or they can have all the items uh, move into the room. And so what I observed with uh, you know, our, our children's school auction was the first year um, and the, the silent auction was about 200 items. Um, the first year, they were cautious. And so they closed out about 80 of the items online. Uh, they had uh, all of the 120 or so remaining, remaining items uh, took bids, um, but of course didn't get that big competitive arousal jump at the very end uh, because people knew that it was rolling into the room. Um, and then they sort of let it run in the room. Uh, that was what they did the first year. What they found was that they uh, there was a noticeable reduction in the amount of work that they had to do setting it up, um, the, the 120 items, and that the 80 items that closed out online did very well because there was this big sort of spurt of bidding at you know a quarter of 10 at night uh, when the auction was about to close. The following year... Um, since they had gotten their feet wet, they sort of went in the other direction. They had 150 items close out online, and they rolled uh, the remaining 50 into the room, and they had a more modest silent auction because they felt some people still wanted that to be part of the experience, but it just wasn't 200 items, which was tending to overwhelm people anyway. Um, it was just a modest 50 items. Um, and so, and that's sort of where they've stayed is, you know, three quarters close out online and uh, a quarter are roll into the room. And overall, that combination and that strategy that you share uh, from your consultants really is a winning strategy for the average charity. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a data purist. So um, you can't give an intellectually honest um, response to say, um, that, or we can't look at the data and say we know um, that the auction does uh, X amount better um, when it's online um, for the simple reason uh, that it has, it turns out no two auction catalogs are the same. So this year we got the Lance Armstrong jersey, um, but last year we didn't, or, or vice versa. Um, so you have. Um, an important variable changes, which is what your item mix is. Now, that said, um, I w this is a very important sort of issue that I'm kind of keen on, and I have always asserted from the very beginning that there should be no magic in any of this. It's just a math problem. So the example I'll give is at my kid's school auction, um, they had uh, gotten a set of Red Sox tickets with parking um, from the same parent for several years, and it was the same tickets, the same parking, it was the same parent. And those uh, those tickets uh, were typically going for about $425 in the room. Uh, when they were auctioned off online, they went for $650. And the answer for why that happened is fairly straightforward, because in that room, um, which is essentially puts a time and geography constraint on bidders, um, there were a finite number of people who wanted to bid on Red Sox tickets. Um, call it, say, 30 or 40. However, when you're online and you're in bidding for good, where we probably have you know, upwards of 10,000 um, bidders who like to bid on Red Sox tickets, um, it's just a math problem. You have more bidders. Right. So, so for, for John, just because uh, I'm, I'm watching the time here, and I'm going to need to thank you for your time real soon, um, it really does matter your outreach and the kinds of items that, that you have, but using your platform, 
potentially expands beyond the audience that uh, that they might naturally have. John Carson, thank you so much for joining uh, us again uh, today here on The Nonprofit Coach. You always bring us really terrific insight, and the case studies that you shared with us today I think are invaluable. Uh, we appreciate everything that you're doing in the nonprofit sector. Thank you for joining us here today. Hey, Ted, great to be here. Great, and we will be back next Tuesday here live on The Nonprofit Coach uh, with Ted Hart. I'm looking forward to uh, joining with you. Uh, And as uh, I uh, shared uh, earlier, I will be at the Think Tank also next week, uh, hosted by AFP for uh, down in Orlando. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. (laughs) 